Welcome to the American Institute of Stress's official podcast, Finding Contentment. The goal of this podcast is to highlight new information about stress and stress management techniques. While we understand that stress is a very personalized issue and different for everyone, we hope to help you find your own way to contentment. Hey, greetings, everyone. Welcome back to Finding Contentment. This is the official podcast of the American Institute of Stress. This is your host and the executive director for AIS. It's Will Heckman. Glad you could make it today. Thank you for joining us again today. Don't forget to visit us at stress.org. And while you're there, remember to subscribe to our free magazines. They're online. They're free. And uh, when you subscribe to them, you'll get noticed when they come out. And speaking of subscribing, yeah, I'm going to ask you again. Hey, hit the like button. Hit the thumbs up button. But please subscribe to this channel. All that happens is you get to know when a new podcast like this one comes out. All right. So today we're going to be talking about something that's really important. It's about stress, of course, and relationships. You know, in our lives, relationships play a very vital role in shaping our emotional well-being and overall happiness, whether it's our bond with a romantic partner or a family member, friends, colleagues, the connections we form with others, they significantly impact our mental and emotional state. However, like any aspect of our life, relationships are not immune to challenges. And, and one of the most common and formidable obstacles is stress. There's stress from everywhere. And it permeates every layer of our relationship. It exerts influence in very subtle ways and also very overt ways. It's, its effects on us can be really profound, including ending relationships. So understanding the dynamics of stress and how it interplays and interwines with relationships is crucial and helps us foster healthy and resilient connections and with those we hold dear and we love. Uh, so today we will we'll delve into the interplay between stress and relationships. Hopefully we'll uncover its causes, its manifestations, and most importantly, maybe discover a few strategies to navigate uh, those stormy waters. Uh, and build more strong and fulfilling bonds with our loved ones. So I asked someone to join us who knows a lot about this stuff, Thais Gibson. And she's an author, uh, an articulate speaker, a leader in the personal development field. She has been recognized by Time, Business News, The New York Post, Yahoo News, Success Magazine, many other outlets for her cutting-edge research on the subconscious mind and personal transformation. She's accumulated over million views across her social platforms and has helped thousands of people create real tangible change in their lives. These has her bachelor's from masters and is certified in over 13 different modalities, including cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, NLB, semantic processing, and trauma work. And through her academic training and client-based research, uh, Thies has created a renowned courses for personal development and growth and also relationships. And she is also the founder of Gibson Integrated Attachment Theory, which empowers individuals to heal different attachments in their lives and reprogram any limiting thoughts and behaviors. And these teachers, uh, teachings have been distilled into uh, an in-depth course inside the Personal Development School, which you can find at 
attachment.personaldevelopmentschool.com. I'm going to put the link down there so you can see it. She also wrote a book about attachment theory called A Guide to Strengthening the Relationships in Your Life, which can, of course, be found, like everything else on our planet, at Amazon. So please join me in welcoming Thais Gibson. Thais, thanks so much for being here. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here with you. I, you know, I wanted to ask you, okay, you're, you're, you, you delve into a lot of different things. I've watched uh, your podcast and I watched some of the YouTube videos and you talk a lot. How did you get started on being, or uh, focusing on relationships and, and, and forming healthy ones? Yeah, it's a great question. I actually didn't start with a lot of the attachment based stuff. I um I started with the subconscious mind stuff. So I, I <clears throat> interestingly enough, my parents went through a really rough divorce, you know, a lot of drama, sort of grew up in a lot of chaos in my home. And um and I think I always wondered like why can't people just get along? Like why is it sort of this way? And I think there was definitely a lot of subconscious sort of seeds planted there for me at a young age and and not really understanding why people couldn't sort of hash things out or work things through. Um, but I actually started, um, I, I played soccer in university and, and, uh, I grew up like loving soccer. That was sort of my outlet. And, um, at about 15 years of age, just before my 15th birthday, um, I had knee surgery and I became addicted to opiates after that, um, got prescribed painkillers, went down that, I went through a six year battle or so of being quite a highly functioning, um, opiate addict, but, but really struggled with that and, and spent a lot of time wondering, like, you know, going through this back and forth with myself going, why can't I just stop doing this, delete people's numbers from my phone, you know, like journal about avoid these people. And here's what I'm going to do instead. And then repeating the pattern day in, day out, day in, day out. And I think one of the hardest parts of that was like the self-loathing, right? Like you tell yourself every day, I'm going to do this. And every day you're like, actually, no, I'm going to go back to the same pattern over and over again. Every day you're like, I'm going to kick this. I'm going to kick this. And then you don't. And then I was in a psychology class and I was hardly going to class. I was kind of hardly making it through school at the time. And uh, one of my my teachers said, uh, your conscious mind can't outwill or overpower your subconscious mind. And to me, that was like the most profound single moment of my life because it explained this battle every day of my conscious mind being like, this is it, stop doing this. We're going to kick this to the curb. And your subconscious being like, actually, no, we're going to keep numbing pain with painkillers. And so I was obsessed at that point of like this, I know whatever this is, the subconscious mind is going to hold the answer to my issues here. And if I can understand what's going on there, then that's going to really help me. So I went down a really big journey with spotty at the beginning, because I was still trying to learn to get sober. And it took me a good couple of years from that moment to, to get there. Um, but I learned a lot about subconscious reprogramming and, and like, you know, one of the big profound things for me was like, I, I started meditating at that point. Cause I read somewhere that, Hey, you can observe your subconscious mind and sort of the thoughts that come up in these autopilot patterns. And I sat down and I went to observe and I was like, oh my gosh, no wonder I want to numb out all day because my inner dialogue was horrible. It was mm -hmm. like, you're never going to do this. You're this, you're that, like just beating myself up so much. And so I was like, wow, whatever all this junk is, I'm, I'm trying to numb my internal environment all day. Like that's what I'm trying to escape from is like what I'm walking around with all the time. And so I got so into the subconscious mind, did a ton of healing 
And it was a few years into um, my practice, I started giving all these workshops for free to people because I just, once I started healing and got sober, I was like, everybody needs to know about the subconscious mind. And it sort of kicked off my my client-based practice at a really young age because I was still in school at the time. And people would just come to the workshops and be like, do you see clients? And I was like, I'm not even finished school yet, but I can in like a coaching sort of space. And they were like, yes, please. You know, so so it was, I was really blessed to get started young. And a few years into it, Um, you know, I started seeing how based on our attachment style from childhood, we all have these unique attachment styles. Every single person has one. Um, we have these very specific subconscious limiting beliefs and fears. Some people fear abandonment, some people fear engulfment, um, some people fear betrayal, you know, based on their attachment patterns from childhood and they're all subconscious and we have different needs and different emotional patterns and things we struggle with. And so when I started learning people's attachment styles, it was like, oh, I get access to all this information about them, like their fears, their needs, their wounds, their their different emotional patterns and pain points and how they are with boundaries, because I noticed these things really fit neatly together. And so from that point forward, it was sort of the overlapping of the subconscious mind and then that relationship component and element. And that's sort of what evolved into um, doing a lot more attachment based research and work. You know, that's not an uncommon thing. I talk to a lot of people in the stress field and mental health, and it's through their own battles that they find their way down that road to become a professional in the industry. Thank God you did because of thousands and thousands of people. So I, I, you know, that's why I always ask, you know, it's not (laughs) like, I needed a job. Never. I never get that. It's, it's, It's about, well, this happened. Uh, and sometimes the answer is shockingly surprising. Um, but I want to we want to get back to the topic to today because it's really important. And we get asked a lot uh, about relationships and stress at AIS. People send us questions, and I wanted to ask you about how stress can impact level of trust and intimacy. Uh, in a healthy relationship, because that's one of the top things people uh, ask. I guess, you know, either that something happens, they don't want to share it, and it causes other stress. I don't know. Everyone's different. You know, and that's why I'm asking you. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great question. So I would say there's sort of two components of this. And And one component is that we can be in an unhealthy relationship, right? We can, for whatever reason, our alarm bells don't go off. We can be in an unhealthy relationship and, you know, somebody can be doing things that's, you know, violating our boundaries or not meeting our needs. And that can cause stress. The vast majority of stress doesn't come from there. A lot of people are in, you know, fairly healthy relationships or with fairly healthy or well-intended people. And yet relationships still cause a lot of stress. And what I found that was very interesting to me is, Um, you know, a lot of our stress is not unmet needs. It's that people are touching on old core wounds from the past that we haven't resolved. And so how the subconscious mind works is the subconscious mind is essentially like a huge container of information. It's like a warehouse and the subconscious mind stores everything. It consolidates things over time, but it stores everything. And so, you know, if, if somebody grew up, for example, in a household where they couldn't trust their parents, right. There was, maybe there was a lot of lying or just mistreatment or having to walk on eggshells or, you know, not being able to form that healthy trust bond with a parent. Well, what essentially happens is your subconscious mind 
as a child, your parents are your, your primary attachment figure. And so as an adult, when you grow up, your subconscious mind um, actually sort of replaces your primary attachment figure with your romantic partner. And so whatever is unresolved from your childhood, you are very likely to project back onto your partner and even jump to those conclusions, whether or not they're happening. So for some people, you know, maybe a source of stress is betrayal, and then they become the partner in the, their, their upbringing where they feel like they have to walk on eggshells. They're suspicious. There's a lot of these like reading between the lines, making inferences about things for other people, it's abandonment. And so they constantly project that, oh my gosh, my, the, this person's going to abandon me. And we can see these things come up. And a lot of them actually just have subconscious roots in childhood that are so profound. And you'll know if that's you, because you'll see that you take this information from relationship to relationship. It's not mm -hmm. so much the external person, it's our internal patterns. It's really insightful. I'm serious. I, you know, it's oh, that's really true. If you grew up in an environment where there were trust issues and you saw it happening, you, you're going to carry that with you. You're going to carry that with you. Oh, like, you know, if, um, just for example, and it's just an example, um, mommy had issues with daddy because daddy was whatever. You may bring that to your relationship because that's normal to you. Absolutely. Wow, recognizing that is is an epiphany. It's really, uh, you know, insightful. Thank you. <laughs> it's, I, you know, I didn't even think about that. You know, to, because trust in a relationship it becomes a big issue if it's not there. If it yeah. is there, you never notice. It's like, it's just a normal thing. Absolutely. And so, so there's things people can do about it, right? So that's like the, we can have that insight first, but then what we can learn to do is like what essentially happens is the subconscious mind stores these ideas. So whenever we go through a painful event, the mind seeks certainty, right? Cause it's survival oriented. So the mind will try to give meaning to it. Like I will be betrayed. Right. And, and so we make this inference about things so that we can have the certainty to know next time to watch out or to protect ourselves ahead of time. And, and so what happens is we carry what these are called core wounds, right? I will be abandoned. I will be betrayed. I will be trapped or engulfed by people in relationships. You know, if, if we have different wounds, right? Some people you see who really fear commitment, need a lot of space. They have these engulfment fears, largely from childhood, emotional neglect. And so we have these, these fears and these ideas and what we can actually do as an adult is, you know, you, you're not born with these things. They get conditioned into you through repetition plus emotion, which is how the subconscious gets programmed. And so when we can learn to leverage that and say, okay, why is it possible to trust? Why can I trust this person and really fact check these ideas and leverage repetition, repetition plus emotion to go against this original idea that we're programmed with? And it doesn't mean we aren't still cautious, for example, in a relationship. It doesn't mean we don't still ask questions if we see a red flag or hash things out or have conversations. But it means that if we see ourselves as the person, this was me in a relationship. I, I really struggled with trust. And I realized at one point, like, hey, I'm constantly like, assuming things that are happening that aren't actually happening. And I'm actually seeing that the person's not doing these things I'm projecting onto them. So when I learned to reprogram those, those trust wounds, you know, it was revolutionary for me, at least as a person, because what I saw is like how hard relationships are when you don't trust, how difficult it is, how like taxing and exhausting it is. Whereas, you know, then coming into a trusting relationship without those wounds sort of starting the relationship off, 
you can rest in a relationship. You can actually receive and connect and, and deepen the, the connection there. And, and it's night and day of difference. So we all have those things, whether it's the abandonment or the trust or, you know, in different forms and to varying degrees, but it's really important to see like, what are these roots for us? And, and then actually do something about it. And it's probably more of an issue at the beginning of a relationship than as you go down that road with that with a partner because you can learn to trust somebody and stop playing the what if game what if they do this what if they do that that's a just a no win game that's a, yeah. you know i've seen it happen so many times um people people we talk about obviously this is, this is a show about stress and, and people cannot avoid stress thank god we we need it in our lives but sometimes those individual stressors um, that we are feeling affect our relationship. So I wanted to ask you, is there some effective way to balance those individual stressors and maintaining a a healthy and supportive relationship with somebody? Absolutely. I think that we do this thing as people where, you know, the more busy, so there's something in psychology called the overload principle. It's this idea that when we're overloaded, whether it's through not sleeping enough, being too busy, having poor boundaries in our lives, taking too much on, having too much on our plate, you know, what happens is we're more likely to break into our subconscious version of ourselves. Like our more primitive aspects of self will come up. And, you know, that can be the type of person that when you're really overloaded, you, you take your stress out on your partner or, you know, you, you get snippy or you shut down, you stonewall, you become emotionally unavailable. You know, people have different variations of this. And so, you know, I think the first thing is that we need to learn to regulate on our own in a relationship, but part of the principle of healthy interdependency is we can also co-regulate. We can regulate through our partner. We can be vulnerable. We can share what's on our mind. And if we're doing that proactively, instead of, you know, once our partner sees us taking their stress, our stress out on them, then it becomes sort of night and day difference. And so, you know, when people need to regulate the the stress. There's two reasons that we feel negative emotion, right? Which would be a source of stress. One is that we have unmet needs in our lives. And, you know, technically that's a good thing because we evolved that way, right? Like if you, you know, from, from a physiological example, if you had hunger pains, you seek food. If you have, you know, the, the discomfort of thirst, you seek water, you feel the discomfort of cold, you seek shelter, like pain is there to actually help us adapt and evolve and and survive. And the same principle applies at the emotional level. If you move to a new country alone, you might feel the pain of loneliness. And that's signifying that you have to go take action steps to go meet people, to connect, to open up. Pain is a feedback mechanism for us emotionally. Then we have suffering. Okay. Suffering is the story we tell about our pain. It's the meaning we give to the pain. And usually that's actually based on our own core wounds from childhood. So somebody, if they feel lonely, if they're saying, oh, you know, I have to take action. I have to meet people. That's an adaptive form of approaching stress. That's healthy. We have the pain of unmet needs. We adapt. A lot of people have unresolved core wounds from childhood and they make their pain mean those things that are part of their subconscious programming. So if somebody instead says, oh my gosh, I'm feeling lonely because I can't make friends. Nobody likes me. I'll always be disliked or rejected. I'm going to be alone forever. You know, the story we tell about our pain is suffering and it's usually excruciating. It's usually very, very uncomfortable. And we give meaning to all these different things. 
And so these are massive sources of stress because when we don't know how to recognize what our needs are and adapt, and when we start storytelling all these things about ourselves, we give it all this meaning. I'm not good enough. I'm going to be alone forever. Those stories cause a tremendous amount of negative feedback, which is made up of negative neurochemical reactions. You know, you're going to have your, your cortisol responses, your norepinephrine responses. And so I think, you know, as individuals, when we don't feel good, we have to go inwards and be like, am I telling myself negative stories and really challenge those things? And also what is my pain telling me? What is my stress telling me? What feedback is it giving to me? What is the need here that I have to action out? And when we get good at that, we get much better at regulating. And then when we can have productive conversations with our partner that way, Hey, what's going on for you? Why are you upset? Is there a need that's not met in the relationship or your life? What can we do about it? When we learn to communicate more healthily with ourselves first and then with our partners as well, we can actually resolve stress at its root instead of just feeling like we build up all these stressful thoughts, ideas, feelings, and then try to push them down or repress them or avoid them. And that's actually a much more productive way of dealing with things. You know, it's it's one of the things I wanted to ask you about, just what you just said. You know, people tend to shut down or not com- communicate and i i i think that's one of the worst things you can do but stress will do that to you Absolutely. and sometimes there's a there's a loving reason for that yes if you're in a certain jobs i have many friends who are police officers and first responders I, and they don't share their stress with their partners because they don't want them to be involved in it they don't want to bring it home but as you know, it used to be in the old days. I don't know if now eight out of ten police officers were divorced. Yeah, that's a lot. So I I wanted to ask you what you touched on that communication thing. Are there some strategies people can do to make sure that they're communicating with each other, not just shut down, not just be you know stoic. Absolutely. You know, I think it's just like you said, there can be such good reasons for it, right? I don't want to bring my stress home to my partner. I don't want to, but I think that, you know, for, especially now, right. in in today's world, I mean, there's a lot of external stress going on for people as a whole, whether it's financial stress, political stress, emotional stress, all sorts of things, childhood, unresolved trauma, stress. I mean, there's tons of stuff. And I think that, you know, every time we don't communicate and we don't share, we still build an invisible wall, right? Because we're not letting somebody into our inside world and we're keeping this distance. And, you know, I think that's fine to do every so often or once in a blue moon, but if it's becoming the habit and the norm of the relationship, eventually you're isolating yourself. And, you know, people need each other, right? Like we need each other in relationships. And so I think we have a duty first to just learn that, hey, our emotions are giving us feedback. And when we can actually, like, we have a duty to, to self-regulate, honestly. And then we can, from a self-regulated space, communicate with our partner. So, you know, again, the, the main thing is, like, when we don't feel good, we have to, you know, the, the mind wants to always numb, right, as a way to emotionally regulate. And it numbs through distraction, like social media, television, it numbs through food, it numbs through substances, alcohol, you name it. Everybody's got their strategy. And you know, what you have to realize is that when we do that, we we never deal with root cause. We always enable the negative emotions to kind of fester. Maybe we push it down. Maybe we get some relief. But where's that stuff going? It's just going into your subconscious mind. It's just being stored there. And so what we have to be able to do instead is at least, in the very least, when we don't feel good, ask ourselves this one question. What is this emotion telling me? And really second to that, 
what do I need in order to create relief? And once we can actually self-observe that emotion and then ask ourselves those questions, it puts us into a solution-oriented space instead of just being against the problem or for some sort of solution. And small action steps like that create resolution. Sometimes it's, I came home from work. I feel like my boss is frustrated with me. You know what? What do I need to create relief? I need to go tomorrow and I need to just have a conversation with my boss and, and hash it out, or I need to have better boundaries at work or community. You know, it puts us into the solution oriented mindset. And on top of that, when we question our stories, like, what am I making it mean about myself? Mm -hmm. I'm going to get fired. I'm not, I'm going to be unemployable. Nobody wants to work with me when we can fact check our stories because the mind loves to go down these rabbit holes. When we can surface this to the conscious mind, just look at it and question it, we can create tremendous emotional relief for ourselves just through a couple short steps there, right? Like, what do I need to create relief? Let me fact check some of the stories. What am I telling myself here? And so we put ourselves into a much more effective place of handling our stress. And then when we come home and we want to communicate to our partners, we can do so from an emotionally regulated space, because I'm going to challenge everybody who's listening to ask themselves the question, when you deal with your stress alone, when you internalize it, when you don't share what you don't share anything with your partner, you know, where does it go? Usually, eventually it comes out in a different way, mm -hmm. right? Through your emotional unavailability, because we're having a few drinks to self-soothe or we're, we're smoking cigarettes or, we're, you know, whatever it is, it comes out in some form. And so instead, when we can work through it a little bit with ourselves first, just by asking some, some questions there and then proceed to share with our partner, hey, I'm feeling a little stressed today. It's okay to say I'm stressed and I need space, but the vulnerability and the importance of that is in letting your partner at least know that you're feeling stressed and you need space or that you're processing or, you know, best case scenario, you can actually open up and share about these things. But you know what happens when we don't do that? The partner senses the emotional unavailability or the shutdown or the frustration. And because all of our minds give meaning based on our own childhood wounds, their mind will give meaning. Oh, they, they're, they're not interested in me in the same way. I'm about to be abandoned. <laughs> What's what, what did I do wrong? You know? And yep. so it, it has a ripple out effect and it actually, we, we trigger each other that way. It's, it's funny. It's like the, it's like the cartoons you see on, on social media of, uh, of the, the guy and the girls there and the two thought bubbles and, and the woman thinking, Oh my God, he's thinking about all these things. And the guy is saying, where did I put that tool? <laughs> you know, it's, it, you, yeah. if you don't talk, you, if you have, again, we go back to that communication thing. If you don't talk it out, uh, it's got to come out and, and usually comes out in, in uh, bad behaviors, like you said, drinking or whatever you do, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're not there and, and you made a good point, you have to do when the time is right. If you need some, so some, just some space around you for a little while to get it straight in your head. Um, Take that space, but sooner or later, you need to talk to your partner about it because um, this is why we're talking about stress in relationships. When those kinds of things happen, you can put your partner into a place where they think it's them. Yeah. yeah. Nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with you. It had to do with like me at work who is annoying me daily. <laughs> and it's funny because there's a statistic, uh, I don't know people know this but we have somewhere between 70,000 and 80,000 thoughts a day 85% of them are negative yeah that's a lot yeah imagine if you learned some 
some techniques or, or some strategies just to get that down to 50%, how much happier you would be. 30,000 more positive thoughts. And one of the ways to do that, especially, is to have a good relationship with our partner that's filled with communication and helps you with your stress. I wanted to ask you something else. For us, stress is not always negative. There's stress with de-stress, which we we understand, and it's and it's a challenge. It's our body facing a challenge. But stress can also be a good thing. As you stress, you get stressed when you're going on a roller coaster. You get stressed when you go on a first date. Those are good things. Those are nice things to have. I wanted to ask you if if the stress can lead to a personal growth in a relationship if dealing with that stress in a relationship can help you grow just on a personal level. Absolutely. So to your point, like there's you stress for sure. But I, I, you know, the analogy I often give when, when we think about emotions is like, you know, let's say somebody feels angry. The anger itself is not good or bad. The anger itself, is just giving you feedback. Maybe a boundary is violated. Maybe, you know, something's happening in your life. It's how you deal with the anger that becomes healthy or unhealthy. So if I use my anger to then break things and throw things and, you know, then it's a negative response. But if I use my anger to constructively say, Hey, why am I angry? What's going on? Oh, a boundary was violated. Oh, let me go communicate that boundary to this person. So if I, if I leverage that emotion, emotion is always an opportunity because it's always trying to give us feedback. And so we can always learn something from it. But if we respond to things in that kind of negative way, then we're going to cause more and more vicious cycles of negativity. If we can take our stress in a relationship and we can say, what is it telling me? What do I need to share? What do I need to communicate to my partner? What do I need to take away from this experience? Then we leverage that. And it actually allows us to become more deeply connected to people. There's different stages in relationships. So there's the dating stage when you're first getting to vet somebody and getting to know them. There's the honeymoon stage. That's sort of like year, year and a half after that. Then we go into the power struggle stage of relationships. And the power struggle stage is the most challenging phase. It's where the most people break up statistically, these sorts of things. But also it brings the greatest opportunity for for blessings because in that power struggle stage, what we're supposed to be doing in a relationship is letting people understand us, letting people in, being more vulnerable, actually taking that conditional based love from the dating and honeymoon stage and deepening its roots, making it more unconditionally based. And we do that through like having stressful experiences in a relationship, like maybe you know, let's say somebody in a relationship is they need their space more and somebody is scared of being abandoned. Well, you know, they're going to keep going through this pain point, this challenge in the, the power struggle stage of relationships. But let's say instead, the person who needs their space sees their partner, learns to tell their partner, hey, I need space sometimes. It's not about you. It's how I process. I love you. I care about you. Let's say they learn to give their partner reassurance before they take space. Now their partner is not making all this meaning out of things and becoming clingy in the relationship and becoming afraid because in that power struggle stage, these things that are causing stress, we're learning to see how we affect one another. And in doing that, we can make these small pivots, right? You can still take the space, but you make these small pivots to be able to say, Hey, this is not about you. This is, you know, I see that this affects you. This is not about you. This is just what I need. And if we can give that reassurance, it helps the other person stay calm. So in that power struggle stage, stress in relationships is really a lot of opportunity for growth more than anything else. If we are able to observe how we affect each other, 
articulate our own feelings into words for the other person and share those things. And that really allows a lot more growth. And then we move into future phases of, of the relationship after that, if we make it through navigating the power struggle. But don't you think it becomes easier? I mean, af- after a while, use myself as an example, it, my wife can look at me and say, well, I'm going to leave him alone. And you know, it's <laughs> a, <laughs> and just because she knows me, we've been together long enough. So, do you think that doing what you said, you know, it, it, communicating that, okay, um, I'm, I'm I'm growing because I'm communicating with you, but I'm telling you right now, I, I do need, it gets recognized without, without saying it? So there's um, different attachment styles in relationships. And, and one um, type of attachment style is called a securely attached person. And they represent statistically, I think it's probably less than this nowadays, but originally statistically about 50% of the population. We have three other attachment styles. They're all insecurely attached. There's the anxious one, sort of clingy one. There's the dismissive avoidant that really needs a lot of space person. And then there's the fearful avoidant who kind of can go either way, but predominantly struggles with, with trust wounds. Securely attached people are naturally adept at understanding other people. Securely attached people are also the most likely to make it through relationships. So they don't need to communicate as much because they are a lot more insightful. And because they have less core wounds and traumas from childhood, they're also less likely to personalize their partner's behaviors, right? They're less likely to be like, oh, it's about me. They don't like me. They're they're mad at me. Whereas our different attachment styles who have a lot of those, those wounds are much more likely to personalize things. And it causes this really negative ripple out effect in relationships. Generally, we'll see that securely attached people um, are pretty good at reading the other person yeah. and being tuned at, at navigating those things in a really effective way. And obviously our securely attached people, when one person's very secure, a lot of times it brings the other person into that sort of secure space or vice versa. And so securely attached relationships are just more likely to get to that place where we read each other without having to communicate. Statistically, from, from originally when a lot of this research was done, like 15, 20 years ago, 50% of the population was was secure roughly. I personally think that it's got to be a lot less than that nowadays. Hmm. And, you know, sometimes we can get away without the communication part, but I think that there's a tremendous amount of value of just learning to communicate what's going on inside of us, share it with our partner, A, because a lot of people are not being able to do what the securely attached person can do, and B, because it actually forces us to take accountability for our own feelings, right? It forces Hmm. us to become emotionally literate. It forces us to put our experience into words for ourselves and unpacking things and knowing what we're feeling and why, and then what we can do to make ourselves feel better. I mean, it holds tremendous value for the individual. And then of course that value can be brought into the relationship. You know, sometimes also um, I find what happens and I've seen it happen in other people is that even though they recognize it, I have a need to speak about it because maybe somebody you're in a relationship with, you went through something together, something happened, whatever whatever event and one person wants needs to talk about it one person needs to like just forget about it recognizing and allowing for your 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 person that you're in a relationship with to fulfill that need my need to speak about it or my need not to speak about it is just as important as Uh is communicating Uh, um, and sometimes it, it 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 means you have to sacrifice yeah i have to sacrifice my need to talk about it because 
my 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 spouse does not want to talk about it. So, you know, it, and 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 I've seen that happen too. It is a there's a lot going on. It's why this is such an important topic, and then it comes up so often. Relationships, and it's not only you know spouses. It's relationships with oh, bosses and children. And, oh my God, it's like you know we can we we can do a lot of shows about this. I'm. Mean, I just want to tell you, I wanted to do, I do want to ask you some practical things though. Um, maybe some coping mechanisms that, or stress management techniques that couples can practice together um, to strengthen that bond that they're able to, to get through that together. Because when you're a couple, you, you tend to be partners. It's more than just emotions. You know, you talked a little bit about financial things. When that comes up, if one of you want to talk about it, one of you just want to ignore it, it's not going to work. You know, so I, I wanted to ask you because you 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 have course a course about this kinds of stuff that people should definitely look at, <laughs> and uh, you know, just thinking, just making it up as you go along, folks, is not always the best idea. <laughs> you know, um, there are some techniques that people can do to help them together as a couple? Absolutely. I mean, there's so many different things. One of the best ones is, you know, to your point, right? Like sometimes somebody needs more space and somebody needs to be able to hash things out. I personally do believe, you know, when, when, and I saw this in a lot of client-based practice, um, that if you never talk about stuff at all, or if it doesn't change, I mean, it definitely creates the the breeding grounds for resentment to fester a little bit, because if we don't feel like we get to the bottom of things and resolve things, they still go somewhere. They still get stored in, in the subconscious mind. So one of the first things is I find that being able to recognize each other's needs around conflict is important, right? Like some, some, sometimes somebody needs space, somebody needs to hash things out. That's not bad. That's not a bad thing. We can actually meet both needs. I think that some people think, oh, it's one or the other. We can meet both. One person, when they don't like to talk about things, usually is because they don't like conflict and they associate conflict with being negative. But just like the analogy with anger, conflict is not negative. Conflict gives us the opportunity to break down these invisible walls between us through deeper understanding of ourselves and that person. How we handle conflicts can be positive or negative. If conflict means yelling or resentment or frustration, then of course we don't like conflict. If conflict means that both people can say, hey, this is what came up for me. Here's what I would need in the future. What about you? And we can do that sort of communication then, you know, we actually resolve conflict. We feel relief. So I think a lot of people, when they want to avoid, it's because they're avoiding their subconscious programming about what conflict is, which as a child, if they didn't see healthy modeling for conflict, or if conflict was an exclusively negative thing, that's what we project onto our current situation. We assume it to be that way. So one set of steps that I often take people through is number one, identify each person's conflict needs. So if somebody needs space and somebody needs time, you got to give the person space a little bit. But it doesn't mean that then we have to shut our needs away. We can actually come back and resolve at some point later. So we give space for a little bit. And then we say to the person, you know, when we're actually trying to work through things, this was like a magic wand when when I would work in client practice with people, because sometimes I would work with people who are very traumatized and had a lot of anger at their partner. I'd work with people who, you know, they'd be sitting down and they'd start standing up, flailing, leave the room, slam the door, you know, all the things. Oh God. One thing I learned is that, you know, when people are really triggered, if you can just validate their feelings, so you can just say to somebody, 
Hey, I see that you're upset. I see you're angry. I see you're frustrated. And I completely understand why. And it's because of X, Y, Z. And I get why you would feel like that. People, it would be like, people go from a 10 to a two. Be able right. to sit it's a down on the yeah. yeah, exactly. And so it makes this huge impact because, and, and I think when we're in conflict, one of the things that hurts is that, you know, people think they're arguing about being right and wrong, but oftentimes they're just arguing about being seen and heard, right? We just, we love our per- our partner and the fact that they don't understand us hurts us. It feels bad. And so if somebody can just say, Hey, I, I, I may not agree with your behavior, but I see that you're feeling this way because this hurts you. And I see that this is a pain point for you. And I get it. I understand why you're feeling like that. We get back on the same team really quickly. So oftentimes first big thing, especially in the midst of a conflict, validate each other's feelings. And I would get couples in, in, um, counseling to sit down and to do this for each other, like actually pass it back and forth. Like first person validates the other person's feelings, vice versa, right away. It creates a lot of resolution. And then the second thing would be, okay, what do you need to feel relief? What do you need the next time this type of situation happens? One person expresses it. The other person extra- expresses it. Step three, brainstorm some solutions to, to actually action that out next time. Just that three-step system helps people not only feel like they're back on the same page and can connect to each other through conflict, but also allows people to feel like, Oh, we're actually getting somewhere with conflict. Conflict is actually producing benefits to our relationship right. when we do it this way, instead of it being this like resentment festering beneath the surface or anger or, Hey, conflict can actually benefit us. And people stop getting afraid of conflict. Like for me now, if there's a, cause I've practiced a lot of this for a long time. If I ever have a conflict with my husband, I have full faith that we're going to get to the bottom of it. And we're going to get be closer after that conflict. Like, because we've done it enough times where if there's a conflict, it's not going to come between us. It's going to strengthen these things that were sitting there that we didn't realize were happening, that we were taking in some way or that was coming up. And so by resolving it, you also stop it from being likely to come back up again and, and affect you in the same way going forward. Right. And, and, you know, with the successes with those conflict resolutions, when once they're resolved, you're and you're successful that breeds more success yes. so so you, like you said you know once i see that i i you know I, we can get through this together i mean i, I know it sounds cliche but when we can get through this together we really can get through this together and and it, it and it and it breeds more successes so you see um conflict as it's just another challenge we can do together it, um, that's really really uh, uh a good technique those three things to do thank you it's 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 not a bad thing to have a formula <laughs> to fix something it's you know i'm the kind of guy who you know i would say okay i understand how you're feeling i i can't deal with that right now give me a couple hours we'll talk about it I love that. So yeah. if you if you even put a time on it, yeah. it does two things. One, it tells somebody it, the resolution is coming. And two, it gives me a time limit. Don't yes. just forget about it just because you don't want to talk about it. Or, you know, you don't want to deal with the stress. You just want to, you know, you know, not deal with it. You got two hours, buddy. And then you got to sit down and talk about it. So, you know, those those kinds of things I always thought is a good technique because, like you said, you validate that person's feelings. I understand it's an important thing. I just need a little time. How about we have lunch and 
Oh, that's another thing. <laughs> Don't argue with me when I'm hungry. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like my wife has learned, like, you know, uh, you want to sit down and, and, and really discuss something. There's food involved. <laughs> like, I, that's a good one. I, it really works. It's a, it's another technique, you know, sit there and like, I'll make your favorite uh, snack. And now you're not going anywhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, 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 well, okay. I want to, I want to ask you about, you know, um, some red flags. Sometimes when we're going through stressful situations, we're so self-involved. We don't realize what's going on in our relationship until it blows up. And I've seen that happen. And that's a, that's a bad time to start doing those techniques because it is now so inflated. You've played that what if game, those negative thoughts in your internal dialogue is just eating away at you for too long. You're not really ready to, to really, you know, deal with it in a healthy way. So what are the, what are the common signs? What are, what are some symptoms of stress that are really starting to strain your relationship? Yeah, it's a great question. So what I found is with different attachment styles, it's really different. So you'll see a lot of the dismissive avoidant type that we were talking about. Um, they tend to stonewall. They tend to mm -hmm. shut down. Their emotional bandwidth really shrinks. So that characteristic or that sort of archetype of people tends to, when they're under stress, they, they become like a turtle going into their shell. They need to withdraw, retract. And funnily enough, you often see different attachment cells end up together. So we usually see the more anxious one with the more avoidant one. Um, and of course, those are the ones that will tend to personalize it, right? That will tend to really take that to heart. I love what you said earlier about saying to, to somebody, hey, I'll come back in two hours. Because if somebody's more anxious, which is a very common attachment style, if they don't have some sort of time period there and you just withdraw, you know, it's very, it's not reassuring. They need certainty and they'll, they'll really panic over that and, and sometimes not be able to give you the two hours or, you know, it can cause more insult to injury. So, so our more avoidant attachment styles, um, they tend to need a, a lot more of that space when they're stressed and, and they may go into more numbing behaviors too. So they'll, they'll, you know, access television, access video games, access drinking. You'll see a lot of these red flags that somebody's like building up this stress and that they're not doing that well. And that can be something that's personal, like their, their work life, financial area of life, or it can be something that's in their relationships. Um, our anxious attachment individuals will tend to become more clingy and needy. They, they try to resolve their stress for other people. And, and sometimes anxious people do this thing that we call emotional dumping. And, you know, it, it can be challenging because they're trying to kind of unload and they're trying to get the person to solve the problem for them. Um, whereas sometimes they, they stay in this kind of state of learned helplessness where they express their emotion and then they don't take action steps themselves to really like see that needle move. And so we'll see different archetypes of people. I mean, then we have securely attached people. They may deal with stress in healthier ways, right? Like actually journaling it out or thinking it through or, you know, playing a sport or taking up a hobby that really makes them feel like they can get some relief and then really process their feelings after. So people have different ways of dealing with stress. But red flags that somebody is going into it are definitely those like early pieces. If you know your partner, you know your loved one, 
you'll see like, Hey, I know how this person copes with stress. And when I see those coping mechanisms on the rise, I know that they're in a stressful space, even if they're not saying it, even if they're not communicating it. And the reason, like, I think it's important to hone in on that is that, you know, when we're in a relationship, if you're paying attention, you'll see how your partner copes, you'll know. And, you know, everything is feedback, right? Like if we see that happening with somebody, we can start recognizing, okay, they're going through a stressful time. Maybe I could bring up a conversation in a healthier way to check in. Hey, I noticed that you're feeling a little bit off. Is everything okay? Or maybe, you know, they're really off. I need to give them some some extra space today and maybe I'll bring it up tomorrow. So that's really valuable. And when people are in that really triggered space in the heat of things, that tool of validating somebody's emotions still works. It'll still, you know, be very valuable there, but it's also okay for somebody to say, like you said, you know, I'm, I'm really upset right now. I'm not ready to talk right now, but I'll come back in a little bit and we'll have that conversation then. And so all those things can really help us be accountable around conflict and and accountable to handle it in in a healthy way. You know, your partner is around at a very special time. And that time is when you're sleeping. If you, because who else is sleeping with you? Uh, If I've always said, like, if you're, if you're watching your, person you have in a relationship if you're that's the relationship you're having you and, and you're actually sleeping i'm talking about sleeping uh together and they're not sleeping and they're sleeping uh, uh um routine changes they're up more they're they're suffering from insomnia or something like that that's a red flag something's going on so i i always thought that that's a great place to start if i come home and i'm less talkative than usual it might be for a reason that has nothing to do with stress, but if I'm not sleeping, right, that's something that you can't hide. Mm. That's, you know, it's, I, I, it's personal experience. I, <laughs> I, I, I gotta thank you. You know, we can really talk about this. I mean, obviously, you know, we can talk about relationships before we can make it, we can make it episodic and have a 10 episode of, <laughs> you know, because every relationship is different and everybody reacts differently. And all of you out there who are listening, the reason, you know, the reason we, we even have this podcast is, is to let you know that whatever it is that you're going through, if, if it's in your relationship and the stress is destroying your relationship, that there's a way out. There are things you can do. The one thing you should never do is nothing. One of the things you should do is go into Thais's website and maybe take that course. Uh, it, you know, you, you you can't build a boat without learning some things. Your relationship is is a long building process. And uh, I, I got to tell you, you opened my eyes to a lot of things that people can do, even at my advanced age and in, in, in long-term relationship. There are, there are a lot of things. It never ends. You have a 30-year relationship and you could be doing something wrong for 30 years. And I just can tell you how to fix that. So I really appreciate that. I mean, you know, the stress stress destroys a lot of things in our life if we let it. Absolutely. But you have to let it. Right, lastly, I, I, I ask all my guests this. I'm going to ask you too. What do you personally do, not not necessarily in your relationship, but what do you do personally when you are feeling stressed? That day is really annoying. 
some podcast interview is really annoying you with dumb questions. What do you do <laughs> to um, help that relieve that stress? So for me, and I swear by this, I was somebody who grew up who like did not know how to deal with my emotions. Like I grew up, did not know. I knew how to get angry. Honestly, that right. was my, my thing. And the best thing, and I, I swear by this still, you know, it's been like almost probably, you know, going on like 15 years of me doing this. I'll never give this up is I sit down, I have a tool I created. It's called the emotional processing tool. It kind of summarizes what we're talking about today. First thing I do is I dump out my stories. You know, if I'm triggered enough, I'm telling stories. I'm saying this person doesn't like me, or I'm saying, you know, the, my job is going to be over, you know, whatever it is. I'm, I, my brain is jumping to conclusions in some form. I dump that stuff out on paper and then I fact check them. I challenge them. Can I really know this is true? And you would be shocked at like how much, relief we can get just from like actually using our conscious mind because it's all the subconscious spitting out these things right. so i'll fact check them and it's funny because you know after doing this for years and years i get triggered so much less often because i feel like the stories you know you you repeatedly challenge them they stop coming back and then i will ask myself after i've done that i'll be like okay what do i need to feel relief and what are my action steps and i'll do that and and it always puts me into like a solution-oriented mindset it gets me out of my head and it helps me regulate. Like I will literally go through a trigger and go from being triggered to feeling like relief and clear and, and actually have having actionable solutions that are going to benefit me the next day or in an hour or whenever I'm going to tackle whatever the thing was that was triggering me. And it, it helps me grow every time too, because I'm able to say, okay, I, I need to set a better boundary with this person, or I need to, um, you know, communicate to somebody that I haven't communicated with, or, you know, whatever it might be, it puts me in that healthy mindset. So that's my way. That's how I will probably deal with triggers the rest of my life. Um, because those are our only sources of pain is the stories and right. that, that needs. And as long as we tackle those two things, then we tackle all the emotions that come with it. We use the emotions as the feedback and we produce these really actionable results for ourselves. And this is why I asked that question. Because I get a lot of different answers and just so helpful. You, you know, you sitting down and unpacking this stuff and writing it down. Is that really true? Is that a bunch of crap that I'm just inventing in my my brain, <laughs> which is me. Uh, you know, it, it, again, you know, it's the what if, well, what if, well, what if, what? You know, it's, you know, it, it sometimes it's we are our own worst enemies. And I've said it before. And so listening to you say how to, to fix that is incredibly helpful. And I really appreciate it. We have people say, I do breathing, I do meditation. Yes, all of that helpful. Try try them all. That's why you're listening to the show. That's why you should subscribe. Um, because they're all so helpful. Therese, thank you so much. I, I mean, you. you saved some relationships today, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, uh, mine is, is it's in rock i can't afford to but <laughs> but you have there are a lot of people out there who don't know what to do that really don't know what to do anymore he's this and she's that and having a process and listening to you describe it is incredibly helpful Thank, well, thank you. you for being thank here. you so much for having me. These were amazing questions, and it was so fun to to chat with you. You're wonderful. Thank you, and I want to thank all of you for joining us today. Um, this is that's it for today. This has been your host, Will Heckman. I want to thank you for going to stress.org. Don't forget to follow this podcast. 
subscribe to the magazine, subscribe to the podcast. And I want to remind everybody, just as I've been saying, just as stress is different for each of us. There's no one stress reduction or management strategy that is right for everyone. So that means you have to tune in next time to explore more stress management strategies and insights. And hopefully what Tyrese and I had to say today will help you find contentment. Good day, everybody. 